What's happening, everybody? This is Dan from Heroes of Noise, and I'm running solo today, but only for a short amount of time because I'm simply here just to let you know that what you're about to listen to is not the normal show. Actually, what I do have for you is an interview that I did recently with Matt Leslie and Stephen J. Smith, who are the screenwriters for this wonderful movie I've been talking about all week, last week and maybe the week before, Summer of 84. Now, guys, if you haven't seen this movie, do so now. Just stop the thing, go watch it, buy it, come back. I know you're going to do that anyway. And then you'll be ready to listen to this because this is full of spoilers, okay? Warning at the top, spoilers, just trust me on this. It's not spoilers all the way through, mind you, but there is enough in here where you're going to be like, damn, I should have watched it. So you have been warned, okay? Straight from the top, you're your own person, you have your own free will. I just want you to enjoy the show. So I'm going to stop yapping at you because we do have a regular show coming out this week, and I want you to enjoy this. So here it is, guys, short and sweet. Matt Leslie, Stephen J. Smith, screenwriters for Summer of 84, talking with me. Enjoy. Summer of 84 is the latest horror film from RKSS, the people that brought you 2015's Turbo Kid. Today, I'm fortunate enough to be here with both screenwriters from that movie, and they're going to talk with me about it. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Matt Leslie and Stephen J. Smith to Heroes of Noise. Gentlemen, welcome. How are you guys doing? Good. Thank you. Good to be here. Good. Man, I'm really excited about this. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my, my whole intro to Summer of 84. Basically... I was just like falling down a rabbit hole one night looking at trailers and I came across this and it, out of all the trailers I saw, it stuck out to me for reasons I'll get into in a bit. But of course, there was that whole retro thing. It just there was just something about the way it sounded, the, the soundtrack and the way it looked that, that really intrigued me. So I went and watched that. It instantly grabbed me. I rented it on VOD. I believe I got it on iTunes, actually. And um, I guess I should have just gone with my gut initially because I ended up like buying the movie right after that. Um, <laughs> so, guys, let me, let me just tell you right now before we start. Honestly, this is actually one of my favorite movies of the year. So I just want to put that out there. Wow. Wow, thank you. Yeah, no That's joke. Awesome. No joke whatsoever. Ours too. Yeah, I imagine so, yeah. It's all right. I think the bias is acceptable. Steve's super humble. <laughs> hey, you got to rep yourself or no one will, right? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so let me ask you, uh, what brought the both of you to the film industry? How did you guys meet? Uh, yeah, so we met in L.A. Um, so I'm from Milwaukee. I actually live in Milwaukee now again. Um, but we met while I was living in L.A. Uh, we met at a writer's group. We, we, it was like a little thing in a producer's basement. And, you know, it was like seven people that would get together week after week and bring like 10 pages of whatever you're working on. And we would all read it out loud and give each other notes and feedback. And so Matt and I joined that group right around the same time. And uh, we really liked each other's notes. And we were in the group for a, a couple of years and kind of. It seemed like the only notes that we would ever incorporate were each other's notes into our own work. And so uh, so we knew we, we liked each other's style. And then we did this program called the Writer's Boot Camp in Santa Monica. That's a two-year writing program. And we were randomly put into the same class. And so it was like, oh, hey, it's you again, you know. And so we got to know each other in there. And we started talking about writing things together. But we never actually did until I moved back to the Midwest for, for work. And I found a contest that was called the Scriptathon, and it was write a script in 30 days or less. And so I called up Matt and I said, hey, we should try this. We always talked about writing something together. This is low commitment. So we uh, came up with an idea really quick. And 28 days later, we had a script and we ended up winning the whole contest. Oh, wow. And the contest was about 1,300 entries. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't huge, but it wasn't tiny either. And so we kind of thought like, hey, there might be something to this. And so we started writing everything together after that. And that's, that was seven years ago at this point. So seven years into this here, how long before you started writing Summer of 84? Summer, we started writing Summer late in 2014. We kind of conceived of it in the middle of 2014. And we had other projects we were working on. And 
Um, we were taking a high concept comedy out. And so it just kind of sat there for a while. And then um, late in 2014, over the holiday, we started really writing it. And then we ended up taking it out to the town in uh, like March of 2015. And so, yeah, it took about three months for us to write it once we started cracking on it. Um, but yeah, so that was, you know, a few years into our, into our writing relationship. So if I have my dates correctly, I'm going to get this question out of the way because I have a feeling you guys get asked this a lot. So I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling you know where I'm going with this. Um, mm-hmm. Let's just say it. Stranger Things. Now, I have no comparison to this movie. Um, I do get why people say that. However, uh, if you're writing this movie, you know, was it 2014, you said? Yeah, late 2014, early 2015. So by my numbers, that would officially make this before. This is like a pre-Stranger Things then, yes? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. Steve and I were, um, I, I just think there was something zeitgeist about 80s, Amblin, Spielberg, Stephen King kind of stuff for totally. people who are our age. You know, like I think um, we all, when we started writing, we were like, oh, you know, it'd be really great. Let's Let's make it. Like we thematically knew we wanted to make it in the 80s. Um, but we were like, let's do one of those classic movies, but let's just make sure we do it in a way that no one's seen before. You know, like, let's make the kids swear and we'll have a really scary ending that doesn't, you know, doesn't go well. And, and that'll really set us apart. And then, you know, we attached the directors to the project, RKSS, and we were all really excited. And then, like, the trailer for Stranger Things hit. Like, I mean, it was, I guess it was two <laughs> months after we, we, we'd finished the script. And we were yep. just heartbroken. I mean, because we thought, there was a part of us that was like, okay, this could either help us or it could just destroy us. Sure. Yeah. And, and then, of course, it became a cultural phenomenon. And like to your point, what we really have in common with that show is the kids on bikes genre, right? It takes place in the early 80s and it's kids on bikes. Exactly. And, ETs yeah. and everything like that. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from there, the differences don't aren't really I mean, the differences are, are the majority of what's there. But um, but yeah, I think it's just a, a byproduct of people who are our age kind of coming of age and having the power to actually get something made and, and making something that's reflective of the movies that influenced us and, and inspired us so much, you know, and that's really what this is for us. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that when people kind of hear about the movie or they see the trailer, you'll, you'll see a lot of things in common threads like, Oh, stranger things much, you know, that kind of thing. But then when people actually see the movie, they come out and, you know, like all over Twitter, people are just like, this has nothing to do with stranger things. It's totally different. Go check it out fans of Stranger Things will love it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, it's an interesting relationship we have with that show. Yeah, love-hate for sure. <laughs> I bet, I bet. <laughs> Speaking of the reactions to Summer of 84, you know, I've been paying attention to it over the course of the last few weeks, particularly on Twitter. And, you know, just kind of scouring the internet, I've been reading up on you guys and whatnot. And from my perspective, it seems like the reactions have all been like positive, raving, in fact, for the most part. That that what I've seen. Of course, you're going to get your, you know, everyone's going to have a negative reaction every now and then. But uh, it seems to me like it's for the most part completely positive. What do you think it is about this movie that's appealing to so many people? Well, uh, so I, for me, what's been weird is the divide between critics and audiences, uh, because Steve and I always talk about, like, on, like you're saying on Twitter, there really is a lot of positivity. I mean, it's. I feel like if there's 10 comments, at least eight or nine of them are really positive. And then, of course, you always get there's like you said, there's always somebody who's going to have a problem with it. And I respect that because I'm the guy who goes to the movies and I often have a problem with what I see. You know, like I I'm very critical. But um, so I, so it doesn't upset me. But, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to see that divide. And, and uh, Steve, what do you think about did you do you have anything you want to add? Uh, no, I mean, it's like like you said, like I think like it's it's super positive when people see it. And that's been great. But, yeah, like I think 
you know, people latch onto it because it has some of those familiar things like that, you know, that they're looking for, like they, people love stranger things and, you know, people love the eighties right now. And so I think that brings them in and then they're expecting to see a stranger things and then they don't get a stranger things. They get something unique that they haven't seen before. And I think that surprise, especially the last, you know, the third act of the movie oh, is really completely. this gut punch ending that you don't see coming. And I think that's, it drives people out of the theater going, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. Like, I did not see that coming. That was so great. I got to tell everybody about it. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that as a kid of the 80s, growing up in the 80s, what hit me about this one? Yes, of course, there was that familiarity. There was something really familiar about the trailer. But then, as you're saying, once you start watching it, it's completely original. But there was something else about it. Another element that I really liked is that I was one of those kids that used to run around in the neighborhood when we could still do that. You know, just run around until yeah. all you know hours of the night playing games, something very similar to Manhunt. We used to do that kind of crap all the time. So I think it was once I started watching this movie, there was just all of this that came back to me. And I, I do, it was a not so much of a retro thing as much as a nostalgia. You know what I mean? Like, I just really mm -hmm. embraced that. So, you know, well done, guys. I really think that that's to the people that I've been telling everyone about this movie, first of all, and I've had oh, conversations. Oh, with, oh no problem. Uh, but I've been having conversations with people my age and very similar reactions too. It's just like, yeah, I remember doing that kind of thing. It's just this really cool thing. And I think that you guys have locked onto something that quite honestly, I don't think stranger things has. So one of the things that's been kind of interesting to me is that we get, you know, in part of the being compared to stranger things is, you know, people have said, oh, the character development in Summer of 84 isn't nearly as good as it is in Stranger Things. And and I said, I was like, Steve, there we're getting compared to a, a 20 hour movie. Yeah. And like, you know, and it's it's an unfair comparison. And so it's like one of those things where, like, I get why people are doing it, because by default to the fact that we came out in the same time period as Stranger Things, people kind of look at it like it's similar. But man, it's like that's that really is like an apples and oranges comparison, and that's been one of the toughest things because you know, yeah, I think I think we did a really good job developing our characters, but you know, we only had an hour and a half, and uh, and you know, I wish we'd have had you know twenty hours or whatever. I don't maybe they haven't had twenty hours on Stranger Things, but two seasons, you know. So that's been kind of interesting. Speaking of the characters, the casting that you guys did is perfection to me. I think you guys had you just knocked it out of the park with your choices. Was that a long process casting these kids? Uh, it wasn't. I don't. I don't know if it was long compared to most things, but it was. It was definitely like we saw a lot of kids. We watched a lot of audition tapes and uh, really kind of filtered through trying to find you know who really embodied those not not just those those character types. Like we were kind of like you know, like referencing a little bit of like a stand by me type and, you know, stranger things type, but like, but also like kids who could sort of utilize that in the beginning of the movie to bring you in and be familiar and then build off that and do something you haven't seen with it before. And so I think, um, how long was it, man? Like maybe like, like two months maybe to find everybody. So it wasn't that long. I don't think it was just a lot of, a lot yeah. of tapes. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of tapes and we, we went through a phase where we were actually going to cast kids who are, cause there's a lot of production issues with casting when you, when it comes to kids, right? All, our main actors were all 14 years old, except for Caleb Emery, who plays Woody. He was, um, he's 22. Um, but when you have kids who are 15 years old, you know, you can't really, you know, you can't shoot late at night. You know, there's, there's certain rules about they have to break at a certain hour and have a certain number of hours off before they can return. Right. And, you know, obviously they can't drive. There's a, there's a whole lot of things that go into casting 15 year olds. So at first we were actually trying to cast like 18 year olds to play 15. And we had a couple people that were, we were really like leaning toward actually casting. And then it kind of fell through. And then the first person that we saw that really, um, 
you know, kind of came across our desk after that was Graham Brashear, who ended up casting as Davey. And as soon as we saw him, we were like, oh, my God, this kid is awesome. And then it was also a thing of like, and wow, he's actually 15 and he looks so much younger than the kids we were talking about before. And then we realized yeah. like, if we really want these kids to feel vulnerable to this serial killer. It's going to be so much stronger for us to actually cast 14 year olds. And so we ended up going through the casting process at that point with actual 14 year olds. And then from there, we found Judah Lewis, who plays Eats, who's also just an unreal actor. He starred in Demolition with Jake Gyllenhaal and The Babysitter, which was that uh, that McGee movie that's on Netflix. Just like super talented. That's a great movie, too. Yeah, it's great. And, and yeah. uh, Judah is about to blow up. And, and so is Graham. And so is Corey Gruder Andrew, by the way, who also was the next kid we cast as Faraday who is also on Netflix's show Anne with an E. And then the only, like I said, the only kid who was older than 15 is Caleb Emery, who plays Woody, uh, who's also just like blowing up right now. All four of those kids are just doing so much cool work. But but with Woody, we had a hard time finding that kid because it's like, you know, it's such a specific type. The way we wrote him, um, you know, he's like a big burly kid and like super lovable. It's based on a kid that I knew when I was growing up. And he was, when we were 13 years old, I mean, he was like a dude. He was like almost six feet tall, had a beard. And we were all still just like prepubescent, like little dweebs. And we, you know, <laughs> we were hanging out with like this dude, you know? And so we kind of based the, the casting on that. It was really hard to find because the, 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 the whole point is like, this kid has to be super lovable. Like, you know, kind of a big oaf. Like you just, you see him and you're just like, you fall in love with him. And we did it. We couldn't find him. We couldn't find him. And then one day I spent like the entire day scouring IMDb, just trying to find people who might be the right type. And we came across him and I reached out to his manager and didn't hear back uh, as quick as I wanted to. So I just DM'd him on Instagram and he hit me right back and we started talking. And then before I know it, I had a tape and we were all looking at the tape. and We were all like, holy shit, it's Caleb. This is the guy. This is Woody. And uh, so so that was really the big the big challenge with the kids. And we didn't have a ton of time to cast because we we're so low budget. We also had to have like at least two of the kids had to be in Vancouver where we were shooting for, for expensive. Like, you know, you, every time you have a kid in LA or somewhere else, you got to fly into Vancouver. You got to put them up there. It's like a whole cost associated with everything. So uh, we got really, really lucky with those kids. And then the final piece was getting uh, the serial killer. And we went through a pretty long process with that as well. And we yeah. finally settled on rich summer. And yeah, I mean, it, it was like, you know, it was, it wasn't a long time. It felt longer because it was, it was, it was definitely complex and, uh, you know, we were all fighting really hard to make sure we got the right people for these roles. And uh, at the end of the day, we were all, including the directors, RKSS, you know, me, Steve, the other producers, Jameson, which are Jameson Parker and Cody's wig and, and Van Toffler, who runs Gunpowder and Sky, our financier. Like everybody was just really excited with our cast. So we, w we went into shooting just like, wow, we've got something cool here. Yeah, I mean, it really feeds into like when we were writing the movie, we wanted to make sure that everything felt super authentic. Like you were saying, like, you know, you you know, with this movie, you go and you're like, oh, I remember playing, you know, Manhunter. I had friends like that, that kind of thing. And so when we made that decision to cast the younger group, we were like, this is going to make it feel even more authentic, you know, and it, it totally did. Like you watch the movie and you, you knew those kids, you know. Oh, you stuck the landing big time on that, guys. Thanks, man. And it really like looking back, reflecting on it, it really would have been a mistake to cast those 18 year old kids because it I mean, the, the, it's amazing how much you grow between the ages of 15 and 18. Like it really is. It, it w You wouldn't have felt as threatened by the serial killer. I mean, it still would have been scary. Don't get me wrong, but it would have been like, oh, well, maybe that kid could like land a punch and like be OK. You know, but every one of our kids, it's like there's nothing they could do, you know. So. Yeah. By the way, it's really funny, too, because 
where the age that we cast them at, like we, you know, since the movie has come out, like those three kids have all grown up so much. It's so crazy. Like watching their Instagram, you're like, Oh my God, that's that kid. Like we, we just knew him like a year ago on set and he was this little spindly dude. And like, now he's like, you know, turning into a man before your eyes. It's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> you're all proud. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got a 19 year old, so I totally know what you mean. You just, there's such a, I see your point about not wanting to cast an older kid because there is a, an inner innocence that's there that may not, you know what I mean? It's just there no matter what. They only know so much at that point. And uh, yeah, I think that absolutely. that truly shows. I think that there's a, a little bit of, a, I guess, an inexperience with life or something like that that translates through that. And yes, you're right. They, they do seem very vulnerable to a serial killer. Like, what are they really going to do? You know what I mean? And I think that, yeah. that again, that was captured very well. Um, you talk about Woody. And uh, I do have a question for you because you guys made such a bold choice to alter the course of Woody's story from beginning of the movie to the end. And was this always the intention or was there more of a tame ending originally? No, it was, it was right from the get go. We knew, you know, we wanted to, you know, I think Matt touched on this earlier. Like we wanted to pay homage to the eighties movies we liked, like the fright night and stand by me and you know, that kind of thing. But you know, do it in a way that has this unexpected ending. And I think right, right away we knew like, you know, if you're 15 years old, and you start suspecting that your neighbor is a serial killer, that's not going to end well for you. And it's not going to end well for anyone you bring into that, you know, sort of determined look at who this neighbor is. And so I, I think right from the, right from the beginning, we knew we were going to kill somebody. And I think we landed pretty quickly on Woody, right, Matt? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right, Stephen. We always, we always kind of intended it I mean, if there was actually a version early when we were working on the treatment of this movie, where like all the kids, died oh, like, yeah, that's right. yep. like they all wound up on that island and it was just like you know like a kind of like a massacre and everybody that read it was just like guys <laughs> listen you know it's gonna be it's gonna be really it's it's gonna be really hard to get this movie made because remember again before this is before it this is before you know um what was the other one it, it comes at night yeah, yeah well what i was gonna say is like since since um since we wrote this, there are movies that have killed kids. And I think it kind of paved the way in a way for our, for our movie. Cause you know, it's hard to get a movie finance where kids gets, where kids get killed. I think that's a big part of the reason why you don't really see it very often is like, it's hard for somebody, it's hard to find somebody who'll pay for you to do that. And it's not like, you know, we didn't want it to be gratuitous, but we were like, if this went on in real life, this is how this would end. Um, but yeah, it comes at night. There's like a three year old kid gets shot by a rifle in it. Um, the little kid Georgie gets his arm not off and then he gets dragged into the sewer and other kids die. So, um, you know, there are, there have been movies that have done it since then. And so anyway, getting back to the point, yeah, we were, we were originally going to kill more kids, but I think we all kind of realized that, um, you know, speaking to our manager and other people on our team that like, maybe we, maybe we're going too far. Maybe we could just have it be one kid, but we always knew we wanted to at least have one kid die because, you know, you, you wanted, we wanted Davey to have to like live with our main character, Davey, we wanted him to have to live with those repercussions of, of his actions. And, you know, I always jokingly say, I'm like, you know, they say curiosity killed the cat, but in our movie, curiosity killed the cat's best friend. Right. It's yeah. like, um, so yeah, that's, I think that's, I think that's basically how we, we always thought it would be. Yeah. Speaking of Rich Summer, um, I've always been a big fan of him, actually. And uh, he's got such a nice guy look about him. And it's just does, it's, yeah. it's funny, the contrast of what he's actually playing versus that nice guy look. Um, how many people were in the running for that? You had mentioned that you, you, know, you kind of found him a little bit later, correct? 
Yeah. Um, we, we went through, um, the casting process for him, for his character, for the role of Mr. Mackey was interesting. Like at first what we were doing is we were making like exclusive two week offers to like high level talent. And then you you make the offer and you wait for two weeks and inevitably two weeks ends and you call their agent and you go, Hey, did they, did they, did they consider the role? Did they read it or whatever? And you always get some kind of an excuse where it's like, Oh, you know, yeah, he he doesn't want to play a serial killer. Oh, you know, he, you know, it's not for him right now, or whatever. And we ended up going through that with <clears throat> quite a few quite a few actors that were, you know, um, really had a solid name brand recognition to them, I should say. Like, you know, and and it was kind of a frustrating process because we were like, what are we, you know, what are we doing wrong here? We're making actual financial offers to these actors, and we're getting a pass. And what we realized is that. The role of Mr. Mackey is actually a pretty small role. You know, it's not it's not like a hefty like there's not a ton of scenes. You see him a lot, but you aren't he's not having a lot of dialogue and he really kind of, you know, kicks in like after the midpoint. Sure. And um, so anyway, that, that I think that was part of our challenge as well. And so it ended up being that, we, you know, we, we ended up getting passes from a few actors and then. And then we made the offer. We, we saw Rich. So our cast director, Barbara McCarthy in Los Angeles, she was like, look, guys, you know, there's this guy. His name is Rich Summer. He starred in the entire run of Mad Men. He's like a phenomenal actor that, you know, most people just don't know who he is. He kind of goes under the radar. But, man, can he act? And we all and I, I hadn't I hadn't I've watched Mad Men. Watch, I've watched Mad Men, but it was only a few episodes. And I, I didn't remember him from it. So he was kind of like a new thing to me. And, uh, and I think Steve for you too, right? Like, did you know who he was? Yeah, no, like right off the name, I didn't know who it was. And like, I, I searched him on IMDb and I was like, I kind of recognize him. And then I did a Google image search and saw all the Mad Men stuff. And I had seen, you know, season one of Mad Men by that point. So I was yeah. like, Oh, okay. I was like, yeah, that's interesting. And like, he's, he didn't honestly, to me, like look exactly like Mackie looked in my head when we were writing the script, but looking at him, you were just like, Oh, he definitely has that look of like, you know, the nice guy, but you can see like, you know, there might be something behind his eyes, you know? And so like, yeah. so I got really excited about it at that point. Yeah, me too. And then what was, what we were talking about, you know, Steve and I always said, we were like, you know, the, the movie Disturbia obviously has some similarities to ours, but there were a lot of things that that movie did really badly to us that we just were like, man, like they had such an opportunity and we kind of wanted to correct a lot of those mistakes. And one of them was, um, the bad guy in Disturbia, the second you lay, eye, lay eyes on him, you're like, that guy kills people, like, for sure. Like, yeah. as soon as you see him, you're like, that guy is a murderer. Like, they aren't trying to hide it. And and by the way, like, we're really not trying to hide it as well, but we want him to be likable so that even though Davey is, knows or really believes it's him, everyone else is like, dude, you're crazy. Because, like, that's the mm-hmm. obstacle of his character, right? So, but anyway, not to uh, to get off topic, but, like, yeah, Rich... Rich is like, we saw his tape. He can't, you know, we made the offer. We were just like, let's do this. And he, he came in and he just was awesome. We, we, I couldn't he have been, none of us would be happier. Yeah. And going back to what Matt was saying a little bit about that, you know, we, we don't hide it from you really. Like we were having a conversation with Rich on set once and he was telling us that that was part of what he loved so much about the script is he said, the script never lies to you. He's like, it tells you fairly early on. It gives you the suspicion that it's Mackie. And all these details are in the first half of the movie that basically end up paying off that like, yeah, it is him, you know? And so he said when he was reading the script, he was waiting for the big twist of like, Oh, it's going to be the babysitter or oh, it's going to be someone of their dads or something like that. And he was so happy when he got to the end and there was this, you know, it was, yep, it's Mackie. That's what we thought all along. And yet still it's this shocking reveal when you, when you learn that that's who it is. He loved that part of the script. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was actually just about to ask a question very similar to what you guys just said. I love the approach that you guys took where it's like the guy you think is the killer is the killer. There's no plot twist. But the whole time I'm watching it, I'm waiting for the plot twist. You know what I mean? So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it was a total in a weird way, even though you know what's coming the payoff because you see this character completely shift into a different person. Uh, it really, really mm-hmm. stuck the landing again, guys. I mean, I don't know what it is about this movie that that grabbed me so much outside of what I'm telling you. Um, it's, But it's just everything that you guys did, you nailed it. You know what I mean? And um, my hat goes off to you, seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah we, we'd, we always, we've always wanted that ending that was kind of, you know, like we, we didn't like the idea of writing a whodunit necessarily. Like we wanted the story to be through the perspective of this 15 year old kid who figures it out right away. And then it's just, you know, he just won't let it go for the whole movie. And it just, it just drives him into this tragedy by the end. And we just, we just love the idea of that right from the beginning. Can I jump back a little bit and ask you guys, um, how you came to meet up with RKSS and how that experience was of translating your vision to film? Yeah, sure. So, so my background, um, is that I was a development executive, uh, for a couple of different producers. And one of them is a guy named Scott Bernstein. Scott uh, produced Strata Compton. And I got to work on that movie with him. And while I was his executive, um, an agent who at the time was at Verve Talent Agency named Tanya Cohen, uh, she just sent out some you know informational things about a few different directors and writers. And one of the things that she sent me was the Turbo Kid trailer. And Steve and I were already, you know, like almost done with the treatment for summer of 84 at that point. So, uh, so she sent me the trailer and I was like, man, you know, this is like, this is wild. It's like Mad Max with kids on BMX bikes. And it's like a real nostalgia factor. Like I, I immediately was like, I have to watch this movie. And, uh, I was like, Tanya, I'd love to meet with them. And she's like, well, here's the thing. They live in Montreal, so they're not going to be here for a little while, but in a few months they'll be back in town and, um, and you can meet up with them then. So Long story short, I meet up with them when they come into town and I always ask directors, I'm like, name five movies that are like your favorite, most influential movies. Cause I've, I find that a lot of times a director has made a movie that's like a drama, but you find out that their favorite movies are all sci-fi or all horror and they really want to do that. And so they started naming literally all the movies that Steve and I were naming as our reference pieces for summer of 84. So I was like, guys, I have to pitch you this movie. My writing partner and I are, are writing it. We just finished the treatment. And I pitched them in the, in the room and they were like, oh, my God, Johan was like, I have goosebumps. Like, I have to do we have to do this movie, like finish the script and send it to us. And, and we're like, we couldn't be more excited. So that's what happened. We ended up finishing the script. We sent it to them and they were like, we don't have a single note. We love it. We want to make it like, let's do this. And uh, so that's kind of how they got attached. And, you know, from there, we just uh, we took it around and uh, we ended up. Uh, finding this guy, these well, the couple guys, Cody Zwig and Mike Flavin, uh, who are at a company called Gunpowder and Sky, and they loved it, and they really fought hard internally for uh, for the team to hop on board, and and they're the ones who financed it. So it kind of um, it was kind of uh, it just felt like it was meant to be, like it, the stars kind of aligned for this movie in a way, because like you know I'm sure you've heard the stories of like Dallas Buyers Club, or that took 12 years to make, and financing sure. came in and out and actors came in and fell out and Strata Compton was even like that. It was like a 10 year process and, you know, five different versions of what the story was going to be. And, um, you know, so it really kind of felt cool that it, it just like it, it, we hit and we just ran. So it was really cool. Yeah. And in terms of working with them, um, they have an interesting dynamic because there's three of them, obviously. So, you know, that's, 
it's an oddity with directors to have three on on set. But uh, but right from the get go, like when we were on the you know developing the movie in pre pro, uh, Matt was up there with them in Vancouver getting ready, and then I couldn't come until the actual production. Uh, but the whole way through. I mean, they were, you know, it was great because they were collaborative with us. And so they, you know, let us be on set and they, you know, asked us questions when anyone had any, you know, questions about any dialogue or if we had to rewrite anything for a location. Um, and it was just really interesting to watch sort of like the dynamic of, you know, these this trio that's basically like a hive mind. Like they never argue about anything, you know, and like they they always have the same idea about everything, which is really interesting to watch. And, um, you know, they kind of divvy up their their workload. So Yoan works with like the actors and the talent. And then Frank is the guy like behind the camera with the DP and the gaffer and blocking out the scene. And then Anouk is in video village kind of doing quality control over the whole thing. And so um, it was interesting to watch that dynamic. And then they would come back together at video village. They'd watch a take. They kind of like check with us, like, you know, like how do you feel about it? And then we, you know, move on. So it was a really great process working with them. Yeah. It sounds pretty smooth for the most part. That's awesome that you guys had that experience. You know, it can be kind of a rare thing for the writers to be there on the set and working with the directors like that. It's kind of up to the director. And so it was really cool that they were, you know, they were good with us being there for the whole time. And it was it was really an eye opening experience for us, like being in the writer's chairs on a movie set, you know, watching it all, watching your vision come to life in front of you. It was a really cool experience. That's awesome. I, you know, as you guys, as Matt was talking, uh, he kind of dropped me off course a little bit because you mentioned straight out of Compton. I'm a huge NWA fan. And I'm just curious if you, if I may. How was that experience and what exactly were you doing working on straight out of Compton? Yeah, it was it was crazy. So one of my first tapes when I was a kid was straight out of Compton. So it was like this really crazy full circle thing. But I, yeah, I was working for at the time I was working for a producer named Matt Alvarez and Matt was Ice Cube's producing partner for years and years. And so that's kind of how he came onto the project. And when I was working for Matt as his development executive and the movie got greenlit, I ended up doing really, really heavy development work with everybody. So, you know, there were, it was, it was kind of crazy. I'd be like at Dr. Dre's house with Ice Cube oh, wow. on the phone. He's shooting right along too. And Gary Gray, the director's there. And, um, you know, it was just like, this is kind of surreal. And just like helping, you know, break the story and make it better. And, you know, it was, it was definitely a surreal experience and it was something I'll never forget. And it, and it really kind of cut my teeth on like the pressures of, you know, working in a, you know, working on a studio project like that. Cause, you know, it was uh, it was surreal. It was genuinely surreal. I mean, you're going to the extreme right there, working with those guys. I imagine that's got to create a, a lot of confidence once it all comes out and is as successful as it is. Yeah, you know, it really it really did. I was kind of like, wow, man, I can like if I can do if I can work on this one, man, I can, you know, like I can I can because that was a politically charged environment too. It was a lot of different stuff going on, and you know, everything from like you know, like even Suge Knight, I don't know if you know, Suge Knight just went to jail, but like, you know, he was like threatening the set and it was like, it was just crazy. Oh, wow. Just one of those crazy things, man. It was like, I can't believe this is going on. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was really, it was a really cool thing to be a part of. Um, and, uh, and, and kind of like learn from. Just a few more questions, guys. Um, you had mentioned your influences, you know, uh, movies that you grew up with, things that you contributed to making summer of 84. Obviously you guys are fans of horror. What are some of your other influences? What drove you to become screenwriters? Uh, I got into it more from like an action sci-fi fantasy end of things. Like my, my, you know, all of my influences are kind of like, you know, Star Wars or, you know, later like Lord of the Rings or like the first Ninja Turtles movie or the Batman movies, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I got into screenwriting because where I started was I wanted to be a comic book uh, artist. And so I, I was oh, okay. studying 
pixel art and animation. And then, you know, as, as you're doing that, you're drawing a, you know, a million still lifes and you're not really getting to, to do the sequential stuff right away. And it was kind of frustrating for me. And then I took a creative writing class and uh, the second short story that I ever wrote got published. And I kept hearing from professors uh, in college that my writing style was heavily influenced by my art style. So it was very visual and you could picture everything so well. And so that was cool. So I, so I got into writing that way. And then I was like, well, how do you marry up the two? And you marry up the two with movies, you know? And so that's how I got into screenwriting. How about you, Matt? Yeah. So for me, like when I was growing up, I would like, I was a big video game, uh, big gamer. And like, I would draw video games and like, and like script them out. Like, you know, I remember Castlevania was this huge influence on me. So I would like draw Castlevania, you know, two or three or whatever it was. And I'd send it to Nintendo. And I remember getting letters back from Nintendo that were like, you know, thanks for your inquiry. But, you know, and uh, I used to write short stories that were actually kind of in the vein of what Summer of 84 was like weird things happening in the neighborhood because I was from suburbia. And uh, but honestly, when I grew up, I kind of was like, you know, Hollywood and that world is so far away from Massachusetts where uh, this town I grew up, Ipswich, Massachusetts, like just like the, the movie. Um, which is, except we moved it to Oregon because we shot it in Vancouver. But uh, growing up in Ipswich, it was like Hollywood is just on the other side of the planet. And I wasn't about to leave my family. And, you know, so that I never really considered it. Academically, I was a strong writer, but I was like, what am I going to do? So I just was a communications major with an ad, you know, focus in advertising. So I figured I'd be a copywriter or something. And then my girlfriend uh, had this kind of life-changing thing happen that ended up taking us to Los, Los Angeles. And I was suddenly like, oh man, I'm in LA. Like, and as a huge film buff, I was like, I had a conversation with my friend once and he was just like, dude, you should be a screenwriter. And to be completely honest, this is me at like, you know, 24 or 25. I didn't really even know what screenwriting was. Like I knew people wrote movies, but I didn't know anything. Like I watched a ton of movies, but I never really thought beyond it because it wasn't something I was going to do. And uh, so he gave me this book story by Robert McKee. And uh, and I read that and then just read everything I could get my hands on for screenwriting. And uh, and then kind of the rest is history. I ended up, you know, by my by my late 20, like 27, 28, I was screenwriting and I kind of haven't stopped since. And uh, and like Steve said, we met, you know, seven, eight years ago and, and the rest is history. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. That's awesome. Uh, speaking of screenwriting, this is uh, more for I know that we have a lot of creatives in our audience and I'm curious what's one big misconception about writing a script and getting it to the screen that you guys would like to clear up? Maybe something that's not so, uh, maybe people see it in the wrong way. Is it a difficult process? Let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Matt, well, you start. You gotta think about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, the biggest misconception, and I, I, I hate to say this cause I don't want to kill anyone's dreams, but really truly, like if you don't live in Los Angeles, the odds of you ever succeeding as a screenwriter are so tiny. It's already small. Right. So it's a hard it's a really hard business to, to, to break into. Sure. But if you don't live here and you're not in the business some in some capacity, it's 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 probably never going to happen. Now, there are exceptions. Like if you live in in the UK and you get involved in like there in the because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the UK has a really a really healthy film economy and you can make movies there. And there are other places like that, too. You know, I think that there's there's a world where you could become successful if you're living in New York City and you're writing there. But, you know, it's other than that, man, you got to be in L.A. And the only reason um, that, you know, well, I think Steve and I are good writers, but I think a big part of the reason our stuff has has kind of like gotten to where it is is because we've been like hustling in L.A. and like meeting people and, you know, working in the business and just like 
networking as much as we can. And, and I really don't think it would have happened without that. And, it, and if it did, it would have taken a lot longer because, you know, we've done the before we were in the I was in the business. It was like we would do the screenwriting competitions and we would place really well. and We do really well. But then it's like unless you win the nickel fellowship, you, no one's no one's really paying any attention to any of these other film, uh, these other screenwriting competitions. So I think that would be the biggest thing for me in terms of screenwriting. The biggest misconception is like you could just do it living in like, you know, Maine or Atlanta or wherever you, wherever you live, it's, it's, it's possible, but it's highly unlikely, even if you're super talented. That's a super honest answer. Yeah. And building off that. Yeah. I think, I think from like a creative side too, like I think a misconception is, you know, that you're going to write that great script and you're putting all your hours into writing the great script. And then you think you're going to, you know, find an agent off that and it's just going to go into production. It's going to be super quick. And like, really like, there's a million steps in between you writing, you know, fade to black to, you know, a movie actually going into production. I think Matt and I like have been on this journey through so many things, like learning what are all those steps are. And you have to kind of remember that when you're writing a script, yes, it has to be an amazing script. It has to grip you from page to page and it has to be so well written that everybody notices it. But you always have to remember that that, thing that you're turning in is not meant to be read by the public. It's just a blueprint for a movie. And there's going to be hundreds of people who come after you and add little pieces of their own vision to it. And it's going to change and it's going to you know morph. And it takes a long time to get something into production. And once it's in production, you really have to be flexible with, you know, running with the changes. And if something, you know, Matt and I, Summer of 84, the original script had a roller rink in it. And when we got to the location, it was like, there's no roller rink up in Vancouver. We had to change it out for something else. And so I think it's a big, you know, creatively, you have to be, be very flexible with your scripts and write the best thing you can write up front, but just be ready for all of those rounds of revisions and all of those eyes to be on it, developing it into the final product, which is actually a movie that you can watch. Hope you were paying attention to that one, guys, because that one was for you. So, uh, these guys answered you right there. The question that you guys have, these guys just answered it for you. So right from the source. Um, next thing, gentlemen, and we're going to be wrapping this up here real quick. I am curious. It's kind of a two-part question. What's next for you guys? And is there a chance of a Summer of 84 sequel? Well, what's next for us is uh, we have a movie that uh, we have a script that's been optioned already by a company called Sinaloo. Um, it's called The Harrowing. Uh, it's a supernatural thriller. Um, kind of in the vein of uh, Rosemary's Baby with another, you know, modern, dark, twisty ending. You know how we like those. Um, hmm. So we've got that. And we've got a, uh, a TV pilot that's out that we're hoping to get some attachments on. And then we've got a few things kind of in the works right now, I think, you know, that we're not really ready to discuss yet. But I think we have probably like four or five things that we're working on at the moment. So that's kind of what's next for us. And yeah, uh, equal wise. Yeah, Matt, you can, you can talk about it. No, I was I was just going to say, you know, going on that, like another another bit of advice would be like, you've got to have a ton of projects like, you, yeah. like, you know, that one of the things that we've learned over the because when we first started, it'd be like, OK, this is the one project we're working on right now. And we'd write a script and then we would just like, OK, cool. And then we're done with it. And now we can move on to the next one. And it's like you start to realize how how like nimble you have to be with story and how, how quickly you have to create things and like and be able to pitch something and like, and have multiple projects. So I think we, I mean, Steve, I don't like how many active projects do you think we have right now? Like I actually made a list once that was a couple of weeks ago. We have 18 projects oh, in the wow. works right now at various phases of development. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. 
Now, now, like 18 sounds insane, and but it's you know usually there's only like three or four that we're actively developing at any one in, in any one right. week. But those 18 are like all working toward a goal. Each one has different objectives and different goals and different processes. And we're like, oh, you know, maybe we can shoot this as a proof of concept with a director and then we can get paid to write it. Oh, this one's a passion project. So we're going to develop it and spec it. And oh, like every one of them has a different objective. Um, but uh, so wait, what was the what was the actual last question? Because I know Steve just answered what, what the projects we've got. Sequel. Yeah, and oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you want to. If you guys don't feel comfortable answering that one, that's fine. Yeah. Too. No, no, no. I, I feel I feel comfortable answering it because, look, I mean, this movie was super indie. Like our budget was low budget. Um, and, you know, sequels don't typically happen for movies that don't make a ton of money. Our movie had a very limited theatrical release. We ended up being on, I think, 73 screens all across the country for a midnight tour, meaning like we only were playing late night uh, screening. So, you know, we didn't really there was no big box office because we didn't we weren't in 3000 to 4000 screens like Jurassic World or whatever. Um, so we didn't make, we, and it was never the objective to make money at the box office. We're, we're doing well on VOD. People are buying it and people are excited about it. And, but, and actually, uh, right now, we actually, yesterday we, we were released all across Mexico. We're on, I think 300 plus screens all across Mexico, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's been, awesome. Yeah. It's been kind of cool to see like, uh, you know, people in Mexico checking out the movie and, and digging it. So that's cool. But it's, but I digress. The answer to the question is I seriously, seriously doubt there will ever be a sequel. We wrote it to be a standalone piece. We, we wanted you to feel just as haunted. Well, you know, realistically, not just as haunted, but we wanted you to feel haunted like Davies haunted at the end of the movie that, that we wanted you to walk away and go, what is going to happen next? And and I, we love that people are going, oh, my God, I wish there was going to be a sequel. Or is there going to be a sequel? Um, but I just don't think, you know, the the the. Um, how much money this movie is going to make is not going to warrant some financier coming on board and saying, let's make a sequel. Now, you know, it's like we live in a, we live in an era of nostalgia. So who knows in 20 years, we may get a phone call from some financier because our movie became a cult hit and they want to make part two that, you know, would never say never. But for now, I think, I think not, but Steve actually had a really cool idea for what the sequel could be. So we'll kind of like Steve, if you want to tell him what that is. Yeah, basically, like, because when we were on the set, we were talking with the boys and stuff, and, you know, they all had their own pitches for what a sequel would be, and some of those were pretty funny. You know, like, like Caleb was trying to figure out ways to bring Woody back in the sequel, and, you know, so, so that was really funny. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, we were saying, like, you know, like, the, the movie ends on this note of Mackie, just like, what's worse than death for Davey? You know, and it's leaving him looking over his shoulder for his whole life. And so we thought, you know, riffing on that, like, when Mackie comes back, like what if Davey's looking over his shoulder for his whole life and he, you know, gets married, he has a son of his own. And then when the son turns 15, that's when Mackie comes back Ooh. to come after his kid. And so we thought like, you know, again, like what's worse than death for Davey, just having this phantom in your life, this Mackie who's going to come back and just take away, you know, it took away your best friend when you were 15. And now if your son's 15, it's going to take away your son. Just continue to haunt you for ruining his life. And so we thought that concept could be kind of cool. I don't know how the timing would work out on that, but yeah, we'd have to see. Yeah. And ironically, then Halloween, this new Halloween comes out where we learn that Laurie Strode has been looking over her shoulder ever since. And she's yeah. been training and she's because she's a badass. And like and we were like, damn it, everybody. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can't do that version of Davey. We'll have to make him uh, a little bit, you know, he's not such a badass. But yeah, that we thought that could be kind of a cool take on it if we were to ever do it. Because we, we always want to keep this, like our objective always was like to keep this feeling really grounded. 
You know, we want it to feel like it could really happen. And I think if this really happened to Davey, he'd probably have been really traumatized. He'd probably have like a PTSD kind of situation where he's paranoid and these weird things happen. And, you know, 25 years later when he's, you know, 40 and he's got a 15 year old kid, uh, you know, he's probably just starting to feel like maybe maybe Mackie died, you know, maybe because at that point, Mackie's probably almost 60 years old and, you know, maybe he's gone or maybe he's moved on and it's been so long. But, you know, then he comes back and sort of like forces Davey to confront uh, the reality that it's like his kid is going to be taken and, it, you know, it could kind of have a really bad, a really terrifying climax. But I don't know. I don't think we're going to find out. <laughs> maybe we write the graphic yeah. novel, Steve. Yeah, maybe. It's an option. So I'm going to share something with you guys that I think relates to this. I think you'll find interesting. Uh, the fact that, you know, even a serial killer can live next door to someone. Something very similar in my life happened, actually. I used to hang out with this guy named Greg. We were, I think it was like in the eighth grade. Used to spend the night at his house all the time. Very normal neighborhood uh, near a church. Just, you know, it's total normal. And uh, turns out that the entire time that I was hanging out with this kid, there was actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the serial killer Max Frank. He was a uh, Fresno State political science professor that ended up, uh, you know, he was arrested. He was uh, basically mutilating people with chainsaws in this soundproof room that was literally right next oh, wow. door to my friend's house. Yeah. He ended up uh, turning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, he rented. He got in trouble because he rented a chainsaw, did his thing and then took it back to the place where he rented it and they found human tissue in it. So, um, <laughs> so that was the other reason I'm like, Oh shit, this kind of was like part of my life. I'm gonna have to check this one out. So, uh, getting, yeah. yeah, getting back to the sequel <laughs> though. Yo, go ahead. No, I was going to say Steve grew up in Milwaukee, near Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the Jeffrey Dahmer era. It's not it's not quite yeah. as, as close to home as what you're talking about. But, man, I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer affected me in Massachusetts with fear. Like, I can't imagine how Steve must have felt. Yeah, it was always kind of a background element as I was growing up. Like, you know, because I was, you know, I was I was young while it was going on. But then, you know, I mean, even when I was in college and I had friends who were at, you know, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee or Marquette University. And like, you know, it's like. It's like, yeah, right there. Like, that's the apartment where all that was happening. You know, it was, like, it was really crazy. Oh, it scared me out here, and I'm in California, you know? Mm -hmm. So getting back real quick to the uh, sequel, I can tell you that if, I, if it does come, I'm going to be there watching it. But I do, nice. like, I do like the fact that it's left the way it is. Um, there's a particular scene where Davey's sitting on his bed, and he's just, like, cradling his knees, and he's just, like, completely traumatized. And I think yeah. that's sort of brilliant. I love the way that, you know, you just leave it open-ended like that and that he is, in fact, just haunted. You never will get that answer. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, but you're going to be tortured the entire time waiting for it. So, um, again, guys, bravo. Seriously, uh, this movie really is one of my favorite movies of uh, 2018. And uh, oh, dude. oh, no, I mean, it's just the truth, you know. And uh, I know you guys are pressed for time, but I can't thank you enough for coming on Heroes of Noise. If you guys have anything else you ever want to uh, plug, please feel free to come back on. Is there any last words or anything you want to give to the audience before we uh, head on out? No, man. I mean, just big thank you for for checking out the film and for 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 blowing us up on on uh, on social media and and for being a champion of it, man. We really appreciate it. And you know, it's 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 hard making a movie, and it's really cool when when people react positively to it. So it means a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. Just really big thank you. Yep. Real quick, I'll let you guys go. But I was looking around last night and I did find some stuff on Amazon. But I'm curious, is there a site that I can go to to purchase like actual movie, you know, paraphernalia, like a T-shirt or anything like that? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, there, well, there isn't. Yeah, go ahead. Now, the, the, right now there isn't. But Steve and I are talking to our financier, Gunpowder and Sky, about creating something. Because we, we've actually had a lot of people reach out and be like, I want a poster or I want to. You know, I want a shirt or I want a, you know, a hat or whatever. And um, so 
we are going to figure something out soon because we definitely want to offer some cool swag. Like I know, um, you know, we're going to have that Mondo vinyl coming out. So people will be able to buy it by the, you know, the score on vinyl is starting in no, early November. But we also um, we're having some artists do like a really limited edition um, poster. And so there's going to be some cool stuff. And um, so to answer your question, there is nothing yet, but I'm pretty sure there will be. Okay, well, then I guess I feel I should let you know you're probably already aware that it's kind of like you can see a lot of knockoffs online like Amazon and things like that. I just wanted to make you aware of it. Yeah. And I could tell that it was an original. That's why I was asking, is there an actual place to go for that? So, um, well, yeah. cool. I'll be looking forward to it. I, got, I imagine you guys will put that out on Twitter or something when it comes out, huh? Yeah, I'll hit yeah. you directly. Gentlemen, thanks so much for coming on. I wish you nothing but the best in the future, and I really look forward to seeing what's coming next from you guys. So, guys, thank you, you very much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. All right. Take care. You too. And that's about it. I had a great time talking to these guys, and I hope they come back soon. Um, you know what I realized is that I didn't really give them a chance to really plug where you can reach these guys. So sorry about that. I'm going to do this twofold, though. I'm going to go ahead and give you the information right now on the show. And then, of course, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Do me a favor. Check their sites out. Give them some credit. These guys totally deserve it. And I can't wait to see what they're going to do next. So I wish these guys the best of luck. Seriously. Super great, guys. If you want to reach Matt Leslie on Twitter, you can hit him up at, at Matthew G. Leslie. If you want to do the same for Stephen J. Smith, hit him up at at the right. That's W-R-I-T-E-S-J Smith. Let me say that one more time. The right, T-H-E-W-R-I-T-E-S-J Smith. That's on Twitter. These guys have a webpage. Hit them up there too. It's at smithandlesley.com. Smithandlesley.com, L-E-S-L-I-E. And then of course, you can check out the movie's Twitter page at at summer of 84 movie. One more time on that, too, at Summer of 84 Movie. That's it for me. I will be talking to you very soon on episode 37. I will check you out later. My name is Dan Ramirez. You've been listening to Heroes of Noise. Peace. (laughs) 